But I want to start with Jonathan Edwards. The year was 1737. And he says, once as I rode out into the woods for my health, in, 19, in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary, of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet love and grace, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me in the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt the ardency of soul to be what I could not otherwise, not otherwise how to express emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, and to love him with a, <clears throat> excuse me, with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. 1737, Jonathan Edwards. 1654, Blaise Pascal, Monday, November 23rd. He had an encounter with God that he simply entitled, Fire. He wrote this, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled from him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally in joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. He then took the piece of paper with, this, with those words and he sewed it to the inside of his jacket and he kept it with him for the rest of his life and it wasn't discovered until after his death. Now go back to 400 AD, Augustine in his confessions. Augustine was a sex addict. He was addicted to his bondage to lust. He had a, a woman that he was not married to, that he was with, and he was afraid to lose his grip of lust. But the Lord replaced it with something better. And he said, what I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You turn them out and enter to take their place, pleasanter than any ple ple pleasure, but not to flesh and blood, brighter than all light, yet more inward than any secret recess, higher than any honor, but not to those who think themselves sublime. Already my mind was free of the biting cares, of place seeking, of desire for gain, of wallowing in self-indulgence, of scratching the itch of lust. 
and I was now talking with you, Lord, my God, my radiance, my wealth, and my salvation. Nancy Lee DeMoss speaks of the presence of God in three categories that she gets from the Puritans. And here are the three categories. The general presence of God, the cultivated presence of God, and the manifest presence of God. The general presence of God is that God is everywhere. We get that. He's omnipresent. The cultivated presence of God is from scriptures like James 4.8, which says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. There's a sense which, as we're in the word of God, we're using the means of grace he's provided for us and we cultivate our relationship with him in a more intimate way. But the Puritans used to also talk about the manifold presence of God, probably scary for half of you here in the room here this morning, thinking we're Presbyterian, what is this? And there are times, those incredible moments in human history when God opens the curtain of heaven, so to speak, and manifests his glory in an extraordinary way in the lives of his people. That should not scare us. We should pray for that, not just for the experience or to think if we don't have the experience that we're not children of God, but you know, we, we love the video clips when, when, when daddy's been deployed and he sneaks back into the elementary school and surprises his daughter and she runs into his arms after she hasn't seen him in months and she collapses and she weeps around her daddy. We love seeing those video clips because there's a daughter in love with her dad. And do we not want to have experience with God like that? Are we happy just with the, the keeping him distant from us? Do we want him not to draw near and to show his face to us and to remind us afresh that we're his children? David gets God in this psalm. He's moving from manifest presence of God or a cultivated presence to the manifest presence of God. Listen to this psalm. And notice the personal pronouns. There's 18 of them in this psalm. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. For the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. Let me pray for us. Father, may you be the one thing that we gaze upon. May we seek your beauty we ask that, Lord, you would open up our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, the text is very personal. There's 18 pronouns. There's also a lot of use where he's taking hold of, of God. And I just want to quickly kind of walk through the text. Wonderful psalm. Kind of the how, the when, the where, those kind of things. 
The first is, is that David is seeking the Lord, and, and the how is he seeks him earnestly, but the how is actually the when. And what I mean by that is, is the word seek earnestly, this very first verse, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. This word literally is, is the word for dawn. It's I, I'm looking for dawn. The idea is that I will awaken the dawn, is, is the psalmist talks about in Psalm 57. The idea here is, I, is some will say seek early. He's seeking him earnestly. David's first thoughts were on God. This is normal for God's people. This is the, uh, the how, but it's also the when. Our first thoughts should be for him. And it should be normative in the sense of God, should, as, as the spirit of God comes into our life and begins to change us, we want him and nothing else is gonna satisfy. Jonathan Edwards described it as this burning desire that a saint has after holiness, which is normal, as in it's, it's as vital as heat to the body, there's a holy breathing and panting after the spirit of God. To increase holiness is natural to a holy nature as breathing is to a living, living body. The fear of the Lord is his treasure, Isaiah 33, six. And he says, godliness is the gain that he is covetous and greedy of, because godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6. And so, a question this morning that uh, Tim Keller gets from William Temple, and it's this question that William Temple once asked his people is, where does your soul go in solitude? Where does the compass naturally, the magnet naturally go to? When you're in solitude, that's your God. When you're finally alone in the car or in the shower or wherever you finally get those moments alone and you're finally able to just unwind. Where does your soul go? Does your soul pant for God like this? To desire to know him, to love him, to earnestly seek him. The interesting thing about this, Tim Keller says, he has this great quote, he says, Jesus does not say you're the moths and I'm the flame. He says you're the sheep and I'm the shepherd. Moths go after a flame, but sheep do not get together and say, let's go find a shepherd. Sheep wander off and the shepherd has to go and find them. So the seeking is always the result of having found him. Doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you will find God because you've sought him. But rather the Bible says you seek him because you found him. So the first principle of spiritual growth is that he finds you and now you begin to seek him because you're being, he's already hunted you down. And now you begin to long for him. And so we begin this, this love affair with the Lord. And so we see worship as a recalibrating. It's a realignment of our hearts and our affections. And the Psalms are full of this. That's one of the reasons we're doing this, this study is to learn how to pray to learn how to cultivate our spiritual walk and the spiritual disciplines. And I hope that you read some of these Psalms. We looked this morning at Psalm 27 and 63 and 84. Let me just give you a few more for homework of these wonderful affection Psalms. Psalm four, Psalm 16, Psalm 17, Psalm 36, Psalm 37, Psalm 65, Psalm 119. 
Those are affection psalms, I'd put them, where there's wonderful statements about finding delight in the Lord. And what we have here is a simile of thirsty people in absolute need of water. David is giving another simile here in verse one. He says, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. We, we probably have no idea what that, most of us, anytime we need something to drink, we just go to the sink and get some water or go to the fridge or go to the store. Kim had me read a book this week that she was reading to Karis and it was a, a book um, about a man who got caught in the, in the war, civil war in southern Sudan in the 1980s. And he's a little, little kid and he's got to flee for his life. And he thinks he loses his entire family. And, he, and, he's, and the pilgrimage is, is just fleeing all the way through southern Sudan to get to Ethiopia, to the refugee camp. And meanwhile, you've got to cross a desert. And he happened upon some people that didn't make it because they didn't have enough water and others that barely made it. And he describes of what it's like to not have enough water when thirsting is real and water is scarce. That's what David is saying, what he, his soul wants God. Are you thirsty for God? Is there a hunger for him that nothing else is gonna satisfy? And then he says, I've looked for you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. The sanctuary is a pretty big theme in the Psalms, is it not? Remember when, when uh, Ben preached? Everything turned. It says, you know, he, my feet almost slipped. And he goes through the whole thing of, you know, envying the, the arrogant and the wicked. And then he says, but then I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. It was in God's presence. And when people get into God's presence, the two things that they keep talking about are his power and his glory. Just listen for a minute. Psalm 68:35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He's the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 96:6. Strength and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Revelation 15. And the sanctuary, this is in heaven, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The glory of God and his power go together, and that's what people see when they get into the presence of God. But the conclusion of the psalmist of David here is when he got into the presence of God, he declared that your loving kindness is better than life. Just think about that for a minute. He's saying, I mean, you wanna talk about the trump card of trump cards. He's saying, I've experienced God. He's better than food. He's better than clothing. He's better than my car. He's better than what's on TV. He's better than the Olympics. He's better than Netflix. He's better than my cell phone. He's better than Facebook. He's better than Instagram. He's better than approval. He's better than the likes I get from Facebook. He's better than my job. He's better than my promotion. He's better than my paycheck. He's better than my retirement. He's better than exercise. He's better than staying fit and losing weight. He's better than my spouse. He's better than my girlfriend or boyfriend. He's better than my grades. He's better than my SAT score. He's better than what college accepts me. He's better than getting my driver's license. He's better than my first car. He's better than my yard. He's better than my beach house. He's better than alcohol. He's better than prescription drugs. He's better than porn or gambling or, or binging or any other vice. He's loving kindness is better than life itself. 
That's what David's saying. He's saying he's delighting in the Lord and he's found him. His whole body now is involved in worship. He's no Gnostic, is he? His lips are gonna praise him, verse three. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My mind is gonna praise you at night with my memory on the bed and I'm gonna meditate on you. And then he says, my hands are, are raised. Why, wouldn't we, why are we embarrassed to lift our hands, are we? We shouldn't be looking around to see who's got their hands up or who doesn't, but it's a big deal in the Psalms. This is the, this is the position of worship. Five times in the Psalms, lift up my hands. Psalm 28, two, hear the prayer, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to God for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 134, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And here, in your name, I lift up my hands. You see, our whole body's engaged in worship. You say, this is nice. This is all good, but this isn't the real world. I got a lot going on in my life, a lot of stress, a lot of things. And as I said at the beginning of the service, do you know when David wrote this? I mean, you think you might have had a, like a rough week? Let me just tell you about David's week. I mean, his week began before he wrote this in 2 Samuel 15, and I should just read you what, I love uh, Leland Riken in the Literary Study Bible. He says this, the little footnote that he gives you to, Here's how you should read the chapter with this in mind. He says, the genius of this story told in this unit is the vividness of which it captures the confusion that characterized the event in real life. Everything happened in haste as David and his followers leave Jerusalem in a chaotic procession on march on foot. Impromptu decisions occur at breakneck, breakneck, breakneck speed, sorry. Realistic snapshots capture memorable moments. The king halting at the last house while the servant troops passed him. The pathetic group walking on foot and weeping aloud as they press into the wilderness. The Levites who are bearing the ark of God, they're sent back to Jerusalem. David weeping as he ascends the Mount of Olives barefoot and with his head covered. Shimei walking along the hillside opposite David, cursing him persistently and throwing dot throwing dust and stones at him. Equally memorable is the gallery of characters who emerge as the account unfolds. The foreigner Ittai who arrived only yesterday and remains loyal to David even when urged to return to Jerusalem. The treacherous Ahithophel, David's advisor who turns against him and go, and then Hushai, the lawyer advisor to David who returns to Jerusalem hoping to counteract the counsel of Ahithophel. Then the opportunist Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who hoping to gain Mephibosheth's estate, tells a big lie about Mephibosheth having turned traitor against David. That's quite the week, isn't it? I mean, his week began with, he gets word that Absalom, his son, has sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor, and there's a conspiracy that's growing and the people of Absalom have continually increased in number and the messengers come to David and say the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so David said to all his servants who are with him in Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, let us escape from Absalom, make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so the, 
chapter uh, 15, verse 30, they went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives and they wept. He wept as he went with his head covered and he went barefoot. And the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. And then he finds out about Ahithophel. And then it says it happened when David came up to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God. And in the midst of this, and the reason we know that this is, is this season right here in David's life is David's in the wilderness several times, right? In the, in the Bible, but we're told here in the last verse, because we're told at the beginning that he's in the wilderness, right? From the title. But then in verse 11, it says, the king shall rejoice in God. And David's not the king, and most of the times he's in the wilderness when he's fleeing from Saul. But here he's the king. And he's saying the king's gonna rejoice in, in, in God even though his son's trying to kill him. And all these people have turned against me, including my closest advisor, Ahithophel. And in the midst of that, he worships. He's lost everything. He's lost favor with the people, favor with his son. He's feeling like he's losing the kingship. He's lost loved ones he's left behind. He's lost his shoes. He's disgraced. And his response, worship, worship. He's got to have God. He's lonely, afflicted, wandering, unsettled, parched, hungry, thirsty, desperate. In all these circumstances, what does he want? He's desperate. What's going to fill his soul? Netflix? I don't think so. Spurgeon put it like this. There was a desert around him. There was no desert in his soul. When the bed is softest, we're most tempted to rise at lazy hours. But when the couch is hard, we rise the earlier to seek the Lord we have much for which to thank the wilderness. Is your wilderness this morning driving you to God or away from God? And do you come expectant? Do we come hungry with an appetite, burning hearts to look upon God in worship? C.S. Lewis says we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. But for David, he discovers God. And now he's saying basically the Patrick Henry version would be give me loving kindness or give me death. So test yourself this morning. Spurgeon once asked, if you got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would you be okay with that? You can play golf, you can see all your loved ones, get lots of rest, exotic vacation, but God isn't there and Jesus isn't there. You okay with that? You see, the first sign of regeneration As Jonathan Edwards said in his great sermon, Divine and Supernatural Light, the first effect of the power of God in the heart is regeneration, is to give the heart a divine taste or sense, to to cause it to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. There's now, I've got to have God. 
Edwards goes on to say the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children and the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. Those are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. Those are but streams, but God is the ocean. And Lewis talks about, you know, these cup, these blessings that dro- dro- dropping down, and they're like a spilt cup of, and, and he says, the, the wise person begins to say, Where, where's all these spilled blessings coming from? And they, and, they, and they go looking for the cup. And where's the cup? The cup is Jesus. Because the cup is looking up. All these things come down from him, the, the fountain of lights. But we have this problem that we want to make a God out of these gifts. May God create in us a disenchantment that these things are not going to satisfy. What are you living for this morning? Jeremiah chapter 2 says, As a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Where are you looking for water, the real living water? And what Jeremiah is getting at here is they've, they've exchanged the best possible water and broken cisterns is the worst possible water. It's like went from grade A water to grade F. And now they're looking in places that cannot satisfy. And we end up with a meaningless life, wasting away in Margaritaville, searching for my lost shaker of salt. Do you need some frozen concoction to help you hang on? I mean, that's, we laugh at that. But what are we really living for? Is it any really any better than Margaritaville? Is it something that has weight to it? God has weight to him. And he's the one that all the saints and all the people of God have treasured for millennia as they've gone after the king of glory king of glory. They want to behold his power. They want to behold his presence. They want to know his glory. They want to know more of him. And and once he bursts in us this desire to know him and to love him and he changes our hearts and we experience him, we want more and we want more. And it's it's not a wrong thing to say, well, I'm satisfied, but I'm not fully satisfied yet. Because we're leaky buckets in this life. And even when we get to heaven, we're, we're still going to be finite, trying to take all there is to an infinite God who's inexhaustible. And we'll be treasuring and pondering him for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Why would we not want to treasure him now? He's offering much more than a holiday. He's offering himself. Take him this morning. Take him afresh. Let's pray. Lord, you are what we need. And you're what we want. And so, Lord, we turn from these broken cisterns that hold no water. 
and we come like Edwards came and Pascal and Augustine and David and we want you to break into our world, reveal yourself, your power and your glory. Show us how great you are and may we fully rest in you for our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Meet us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.